Hello everyone, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1-18, through 18, the whole chapter today. We don't have any context yet because we are just starting the book, but I can give you some introduction. The date is somewhere shortly before Paul's death. This is one of the last Paul, letters Paul ever wrote. Perhaps Timothy, Titus was later. It was written between his first and second imprisonment at Rome, if you do believe in the two imprisonment theory as I do. Since that's the majority of you, I'm going to go along with that. And so the date is somewhere around 64, 65, although some would put it as late as 67 A.D. So Paul is in prison. He's writing to his beloved son, Timothy, starting with verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now Paul, that's the Greek name for Saul, it means little or least, a lot of times we don't think about people's names. Little or least, Paul is in prison now. He's probably feeling a little bit alone and abandoned. He mentions that everybody in Asia abandoned him later on in the chapter. He's mentioned about people being ashamed of him, and he's he's mentioned the word ashamed three times in the chapter. So he's probably feeling a little bit l- l- little now, a little bit l- like he's the least of all, a little bit down. Jameson Fawcett Brown, quoting the famous Protestant theologian Bengal, says that this letter is the last testament and swan-like death song of Paul, although I don't know about Titus. That was written in AD 66 or so. That could have been the last letter, too. I don't know how people tell that. But at any rate, this is Paul at the end of his life. He's writing to somebody who's been with him since the very first of the second missionary journey, which was somewhere around 51 or so AD, and now we're in 65. We're talking about 15 years Timothy's been with Paul, never has left him, been at his side most of the time ministering on his journeys from the second journey to the third journey all the way to Jerusalem at the end of the third journey back to Rome with him in Rome during Paul's imprisonment and now Timothy's gone back to Ephesus and Paul is still in prison in Rome but Timothy's been with him for a long time. Paul mentions that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. He's an apostle according to the promise of life. Paul is thinking about life because he's probably thinking about his physical death that's coming up. So he's probably thinking about his of his eternal life, which is about to arise. And he writes to Timothy, my beloved son. Before we talk about verse 2, let's finish with verse 1 here. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, you hear that so much you don't think too much about it. But an apostle, which means a sent one, this interesting word study here, or different, uh, interesting Bible study because... A lot of people, namely secessionists, say that apostles didn't exist after the original 12, or at least they say they're somehow different than the original apostles. I don't know exactly how they handle this, but they say that apostles definitely don't last today. Well, as a start to that argument, let's point out that, yes, there were apostles after the original 12. That's real easy to prove. For example, Apollos, 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 13. Now, brothers and sisters, Paul writes, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Verse 9, for I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place. So he's talking about himself and Apollos, and then he said, then he refers in verse 1, and then in, in verse 6, I'm sorry, and then in verse 9 he says, I think God has displayed us, displayed us, the apostles, in last place. So he refers to himself and also to Apollos as apostles. James, the Lord's brother, is called an apostle. Paul writes in Galatians 1.19, But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. That's clear as a bell. Barnabas is called an apostle. 
Acts chapter 14, verse 4, this is on the first journey. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with Jews and others with the apostles. Well, since it was only Paul and Barnabas on the journey, then that means Barnabas was one of the apostles, Paul and Barnabas. And in fact, we go down to verse 14 in Acts 14, and it says the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, tore their robes. The apostles, Barnabas and Paul explicitly called an apostle Barnabas is. Timothy is also called, and Silas also, are called apostles. First Thessalonians 1.1, Paul addresses the Thessalonians this way, Paul, Salvanus, and Timothy. Salvanus is another word for Silas. Paul, Salvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. And then in verse 7, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, we, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, could have been burdened as Christ's apostles. So Timothy is called an apostle, Silas is called an apostle, and then Matthias, the one who was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot in Acts chapter 1, he's called an apostle, obviously. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So you see, there's lots of other apostles besides the original. If you want to make a distinction, you can call the original twelve capital A apostles, and the following apostles, little a apostles. Now, People are constantly quoting 1 Corinthians 9 and saying, when Paul says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? Have I not worked the signs of an apostle? As they say, you've got to see the Lord and do miracles in order to be an apostle. Well, did Timothy see the Lord? He's called an apostle. Did he do miracles? I guess he probably did, but we don't know that he did. It's not stated anywhere that I know of that he did. Is Barnabas an apostle? Did he see the Lord? He's called an apostle explicitly in Scripture. James, the Lord's brother, well, he saw the Lord, obviously, because he grew up with him. Apollos, did he see the Lord? They're called apostles, but they didn't see the Lord. And a lot of them maybe didn't work miracles, although I bet they did, but they're not recorded anyway that they did miracles. So these people who got all these tight qualifications on being an apostle to, to avoid having apostles in the present day, they need to do their homework instead of just quoting 1 Corinthians 9. I, I've explained 1 Corinthians 9 in my audio on that chapter in such a way as that you don't have to state that that is a requirement. Seeing the Lord and doing miracles is a requirement to be an apostle. And if it is a requirement, how in the world do you handle Paul's not one of the original apostles? He's called an apostle. James, Barnabas, well, excuse me, not James, but Barnabas, Timothy, Silas, Matthias. They didn't see the Lord, but they were apostles. Enough of that. That's my pet peeve. I spent too much time on it. Paul mentions Jesus Christ. We often hear the word Jesus so much we don't think about what his name means. It means Yahweh saves, which is a great name for the Savior of the world to be named Savior, the one who saves. To Timothy, my beloved son, in verse 2, Paul calls him a son. He was his spiritual father in the gospel. Now, he discipled him, we know, obviously, but did he convert him? Probably not. John Gill says that not on account of his being an instrument of his conversion, but by reason of that instruction in the doctrines of the gospel. But he was so close, he called him a son. We go to verse 3, 2 Timothy. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Now, Ellison makes a point when he talks about, when Paul talks about serving Paul, serving God like his ancestors served God is that Paul was not conscious of Christianity being a separate or new faith from the Old Testament. Really? I think that's a little extreme. That denies the difference between the old and the new, the old Israel and the new Israel. Of course Paul realized that Christianity was a new faith. He realized it grew out of the trunk of Old Testament Judaism. 
he believed in the prophets. He quoted them all the time. Yes, I grant you that. He loved Isaiah, for example. So he could quote from all the Old Testament prophets, but still know that, hey, something new has come. There is a new and living way. The old has passed away. The new has come. Do a word study of new and see how many times you see new. And you, I sing a new song on and on and on. And the, well, enough of that. That's just an opinion that Ellison had. I didn't quite, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Paul said he served his, his ancestors, served God just like he did. Well, I'm sure he's referring to his Jewish ancestors, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, they served God with a clear conscience. Well, Paul's conscience is clear now because he's a Christian. I wonder about when he was persecuting Christians, did he have a clear conscience? I think he probably did. He probably thought he was doing the right thing until Jesus pointed out to him that he was in gross error. Now, why did Paul mention that he was serving God with a clear conscience now to Timothy? Maybe he was referring to guilt that he had felt because he had abandoned Judaism for Christianity, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. In other words, people are saying, hey, you can't be a true Jew. Kind of like Joe Biden the other day said, you can't be a black, you can't be a true black person and vote for Trump. Maybe people are telling Paul, you can't be a true Jew and follow Christ. And so Paul is responding to that idea out there and saying, hey, I'm serving Christ with a clear conscience. I'm serving God with a clear conscience. Don't tell me I should be guilty for what I'm doing just because I've left the Jewish faith. We go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. As I remember your tears, Paul writes, Timothy, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Now, what tears? Probably when they parted in a previous time. Gil mentions that at Miletus, I'm not aware that Timothy left Paul at Miletus. I couldn't find that anywhere. I don't know where Gil got that from. But the Cambridge Commentary for Schools and Colleges says that when Paul was Timothy was with Timothy in Ephesus, then Paul left for Macedonia. That, I'm assuming, is on the so-called fourth missionary journey between his two imprisonments. We read in 1 Timothy, I don't have the quote in front of me, but Paul did that. He left Timothy and went for Macedonia. And maybe that was when Timothy cried because Paul left. Actually, we don't know when it was. It doesn't really matter when it was. But the point is, is they were so close, it was tough for Timothy to let him go. Especially back then, they didn't have the Internet. Mail was very slow. It was done by personal messenger. They didn't even have a telephone. And when people left, it might very well have been, been they've left for the last time. I have made it a practice. I remember I had a very close friend, one of my closest friends in college, who saved my bacon spiritually. And I knew he was dying from Alzheimer's. And I hadn't seen him in a while, and I knew he was losing his mind. And his wife brought him up to to see my wife and I. And I was surprised. He didn't seem as bad off as I thought he was, although he was losing his mind. And when he left, I thought, you know, this might be the last time I ever see him. As a matter of fact, it was. But I made it a point to say, well, it doesn't matter. Why get maudlin about the last time you see somebody on earth? I'm going to see him forever. I don't need to worry about what time he left me on earth. I mean, it's painful. I ain't going to die. But it was painful for Paul and Timothy. Timothy cried when he left. But, but you know, we got to remember, we leave somebody, it ain't forever. If they're Christians, we're going to see them again. So Paul says, I long to see you. That's because he's in jail. And of course, he longs to see Timothy because he's in jail, getting ready to get executed. And if he saw Timothy, he would be filled with joy. It's amazing how other Christians, other people, other family members, it's amazing how people you really want to see, how they just cheer you up when you see them. Second Timothy 1, 5. 
Paul tells Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now I'm assuming that both Grandmama Lois and Mama Eunice were saved. Somebody has suggested that maybe the grandmother had faith in Yahweh in Judaism, not a faith in Jesus. I don't think so. I think they believed. Sounds like it to me. Someone has speculated that Timothy's mother was converted at Paul's first visit to Lystra, and by the time Paul shows up at Lystra on the second journey to pick Timothy up, he had gotten converted. Ah, that's just speculation. Nobody knows when they got saved, and it doesn't matter. Now, the grandmother Lois was Jewish, and probably a Jewish Christian. Eunice was a Jewish Christian. Timothy's father was a Greek and an unbeliever. We know that because in Acts 16.1, Luke writes this, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, that was Eunice, who was a believer, so Eunice is a believer, and his father was a Greek. But his father was a Greek. The but there means that his father was an unbelieving Greek. And which goes to show, Timothy was a very solid Christian all through his life and ministry. And I'm sure many pastors, I know many pastors have made the point, is the the sound Christian upbringing he got from his grandmama and his mama had a big impact on Timothy's life and ministry. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Second Timothy 1, 6 and 7, For this reason I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God, Paul tells Timothy, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now why would Paul remind Timothy to fan and to flame the gift of God? I'll tell you, we'll discuss what that gift is later. But why does Paul need to tell Timothy to fan and to flame the gift of God? Ellison says that, Perhaps it's because Timothy had become lethargic spiritually. He denies that speculation. Jameson Fawcett Brown seems to hold that. He says, Timothy, quote, Timothy seems to have become somewhat remiss from being so long without Paul. And in support of that idea that, Tim, that Timothy had backslid somewhat, we read 2 Timothy 2.22. Paul tells Timothy, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So the fact that Paul exhorted Timothy to flee from youthful passions, and to and also because Timothy had to be reminded to fan and flame the gift of God, this is supposed to show that Timothy's backed off from the faith a little bit. I don't believe that. Neither does Ellison. He denies that. Ellison says the reason that Paul is exhorting Timothy to flee youthful passages in, in the second chapter and in this chapter to fan the flame of his gift is because the circumstances have become more difficult than normal because of all those false teachers, the Jewish Gnostic, the legalistic Gnostic Jewish false teachers who were posing Timothy at Ephesus. And that's why Paul says, fan the flame. Now, what's this gift of God that's in Timothy by the laying on of Paul's hands? Well, there's two options, basically. The gift of the Holy Spirit and other gifts that might flow from that gift of the Holy Spirit. Or, as I like to call it, because it gives cessationist grief, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It could be that with the laying on of hands, because typically when people pray for the laying on of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, they laid hands on people. Now the context seems to prefer that here, because if we read in the next verse, we read in verse seven, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And that sounds like the works of the Holy Spirit in somebody. Well, that's reasonable. However. Those who would argue that it's referring to stir up the gift of eldership or apostleship, it's not clear 
how Timothy's operating here, but but a ministry gift of church leadership, let's put it that way, they can quote 1 Timothy 4.14, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, if you go back to 1 Timothy 4 and 3 and 2, you will see that it's all about church government, how men are supposed to pray in the church, how women are not supposed to teach in the church, how we're supposed to honor widows, how we're supposed to honor elders. What are the qualifications for elders? What are the qualifications for demons? Uh, for demons, I'm sorry, for deacons. So all of that is all about church. And so when Paul says, Timothy, don't neglect the gift you have, it makes you think that he's what he's talking about is the gift of being an elder or or an apostle. Well, there's a possibility that he's talking about two gifts. In 1 Timothy 4.14, he's talking about the gift of leadership. And then here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's possible. Or you could say, contrary to what I just said, that 2 Timothy 1.6 refers to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It could be that Paul says, God gave us a spirit, not a fear, and a power, and love. So you need to fan into flame the gift of your leadership. And don't be afraid of these false teachers. And have power over them. Could be. Love and self-control. I'm not sure what that's got to do with it. But you could make an argument that's still talking about the eldership gift or the leadership gift, if you will. So it's not very clear to me. Seems like it could go either way and commentators split on that and go either way. But, again, the main point to take away from this is that whatever gifts God has put in us, if we want to apply it to today's circumstances, is stir it up. Operate it. Exercise it. Don't let that gift lay dormant in one because the kingdom of God needs all the ministers we can get. Now, Paul in verse 7 says, God gave us a spirit, not a fear. Is that the Holy Spirit or is it mean a human spirit that's calmed down and is full of self-control and love and it doesn't have any fear and it has powers and a human spirit or the Holy Spirit? Actually, we don't know. The Greek, of course, has no capital letters and the translation split between those two options. And it doesn't really matter because if it's human spirit, God gave us a human spirit that doesn't fear. Well, how does the human spirit not fear? Because of the Holy Spirit mingling with the human spirit in in union with the with the human spirit so it doesn't matter we go to second timothy 1 8 therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our lord nor of me his prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of god now the word ashamed is a key word in this first chapter of second timothy it shows up three times here where paul says don't be ashamed of the testimony about a Lord. And the reason he's saying that, by the way, is because he's in prison. And it's a shameful thing to be in prison. And Paul is probably feeling the shame a little bit. And he's saying, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of me. He says, I'm his prisoner. I'm the Lord's prisoner. I'm not the Roman government's prisoner. I'm the Lord's prisoner. I'm in here for the Lord. So don't be ashamed of me. He mentions that word shamed in two other places in the first chapter. Second Timothy 1.12 but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He's not ashamed, he declares. Second Timothy 1.16 May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. So, Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed that he's a prisoner, but actually share in the suffering. Of course, the suffering is being in jail. Share with me, Timothy. The same kind of suffering I'm suffering in jail is going to happen to you too. Suffer for the gospel by the power of God. And let me ask you, how many times do you hear people talk to other Christians about, hey, share with me in my suffering? How many times have you heard that? Well, actually, I heard something like that one time, but it wasn't in America. It was in China. And I'll never forget it. I was in a church. It was not a house church. It was in a fairly large building. 
or in a, it might have been a, a business building, apartment complex, I can't remember. But it was not your typical small house church meeting in China. And the church had been started 20, 30 years before by a woman at the university I taught at. And she had turned over the leadership of the church to three, three young men who were well-trained theologically. So it was an unusual type church. And that woman got up. And I happened to be visiting this day she got up. And I'm glad I was because she got up and she said, I want all of you to repeat after me. I will suffer for Christ. And there was not any movement in the room. There was not any amens. There was not any noise. There was just dead silence as everybody stared at it. I went. Th- I was thinking, oh, my gosh. And she said it again. I want everybody in here to repeat after me. I will suffer for Christ. Now, you know, when somebody in China says that, it means something because I, I was there. I saw it. I saw churches run out of the building, including this church. They got run out of their building several times while I was there. I've ruined with a guy who was tortured, beaten mercilessly, and left out in the hot sun with his throat closing up, sitting in a room full of a little tiny prison cell full of convicted rapists and murderers with one squatty potty there that stunk up the room in the blazing hot sun with flies buzzing all around, Who was and he was whipped with a telephone as the guard got the phone out with a cord and just slung it and slammed it at him and added an electric cattle prod that stuck it on his genitals and you got the idea. So when somebody in China says suffering, that means something. And that's why it was real quiet in there when this when this woman started talking. She said it a third time. She says, I want you to repeat after me, I will suffer with Christ. And by this time, a few people were saying it, maybe half the congregation very softly. Finally, she said it a fourth time. I'm asking you again to repeat after me. I will suffer with Christ. That, my friends, was one of the most dramatic things I have ever seen. I get choked up now even thinking about it. I I can't, to be honest with you, I can't remember if I ever said it. I didn't think I had the guts to say it. People think in America we're not going to suffer. We can't suffer. Oh, yes, you can. It's real easy to suffer. God can arrange suffering any time. Paul was suffering. He was in jail. All right? So... If you don't think the suffering's in the gospel, and again, if you're into the hyperfaith horse crap heresy, that God wants you to be rich and live in a $23 million mansion just because you're a Christian, listen to these verses and tell me if you can believe in that nonsense anymore. Matthew 5:11 and 12, Jesus is speaking. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Suffering and persecution has always come with the spread of the gospel. But now notice Jesus said rejoice anyway. He says, don't, don't worry about it. Be happy. Job 15, uh, John 15 and 18, chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Well, they persecuted Jesus, and they're going to persecute Jesus' disciples. John 16:2. then they will put you out of the synagogues, and then the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, kind of like Paul the Apostle. That, of course, came true. The Christians were persecuted from synagogue to synagogue by the apostate, Christ-hating, Jewish, wicked generation back then. 
Job 17:14 I have given I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world the world has hated them. And, of course, Jesus is referring to his elect sheep. Acts 14:22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Everywhere you look in the three missionary journeys in Acts, the apostles were persecuted. They suffered. They were put in jail. Romans 5, 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It was granted to you. That's a gift. The gift of suffering. You ever hear people talk about that very much? 1 Thessalonians 3.30-4, That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. That was when the mob there in Thessalonica converged on Jason's house trying to find the apostles. They didn't find them, but they they treated Jason pretty badly. Second Timothy through 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. James 1, 2-4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, there's positive stuff mixed in with all the stuff about suffering, and we need to rejoice. We need to be thankful. It produces good state. The testing of your faith, this persecution, produces steadfastness, or steadiness, if you will, or faithfulness. It makes you perfect and complete. Nobody likes suffering. That's why it's called suffering. Everybody hates it. But by golly, as I've just proved to you by reading through the scriptures here, it's everywhere in the scriptures. And these people out there talking about their Rolls Royces and their Cadillacs and their Rolls Rolex watches are frauds. I don't know how else to say it. They are crooked frauds. Second Timothy 1.9 Who, this is Jesus, saved us and called us to a holy calling. Let's see if that's Jesus or God the Father. Let me go back and pick it. I'm sorry, it's God the Father in verse 8. Paul is said to be Jesus' prisoners. Please, Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 9, who saved us, God who saved us, and called us to a holy calling. Holy means separate and dedi- separate from the world, dedicated to God. And that's the way we're supposed to be, separate from the world, dedicated to God. And how has he called us and saved us? Not because of our works, but because of his, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, this thing of salvation by grace and not works, of course, is a fundamental theme of the Protestant Reformation, and I'm sure you've heard it. But just to give you a feel for how often Paul talks about it in his letters, I'm going to run through some sample verses here. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Romans 3.27 and 28, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 4, 4 through 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So in other words, we're not interested in work. We're not interested in wages. We're interested in gifts. We're interested in faith. We can't work for God and have him pay us with eternal life. Our labor's not good enough for that. Romans 9, 11. Though they were not yet born and had not done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, that's come about Jacob and Esau in their mother's womb, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, not because of works. 
Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Plain as day there, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Second Timothy 1, 9, which we just read. In fact, that's the verse we're on now. I'll skip that one. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You want the Holy Spirit to operate in regeneration, getting born again, and renewal, renewing the renewing sanctification, let's say. It's not by works done by us in righteousness, our righteous works. It's according to his mercy, his grace. Notice here in verse 9, 2 Timothy 1, God has called us because of his own purpose. The reason you were saved is because God had a purpose for you. God saved us for his own reasons. I don't know what those reasons are. And I don't. I mean, if you're like me, a lot of times you think, what am I here for? I'm not doing anything. Just take me to heaven. I'm wasting my time here on earth. But God's got his own purpose for calling you. And this calling and this grace were given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, before the world began. Now, Adam Clark says it's before the Mosaic dispensation took place. I don't know where in the world he gets that from. Let's just, let's just assume here, before the ages began means before the world began, God gave us his grace. Verses 10, 11, and 12, 2 Timothy 1. And which now, that's talking about the grace that God's given us, and this grace now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, when Paul says that Jesus has abolished death, he's probably thinking about his own impending death, and he's saying, well, okay, I'm going to die. The Romans are about to kill me. That's okay, because I'm not going to die. Jesus has abolished death. He says, uh-uh, he's canceled. It's over. It's out of here. He says, instead of death, there's life and immortality through the gospel is what Jesus brought. And he says, for that gospel, he was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which shows that people have more than just one gift. We think of the apostle Paul, but he was also a teacher. He was also a preacher and an evangelist who got tried to get people saved and did get people saved. So all of it rolled together in one nice package. And that, because he's a preacher and an apostle and teacher, is why he suffers. Well, how does he suffer? Well, he's in jail in Rome. That's why he's suffering. He says, but even though I'm in jail, I am not ashamed. Of course, being in, in jail isn't a shameful place to be, but he was not ashamed of being in jail. Why? Because he knows Jesus who he's believed, and he's convinced that Jesus is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day? First of all, guard till, till that day. Let's assume that day is the end of time. We'll talk about that in a minute. But right now, let's talk about how this verse is translated. I am convinced he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me. A lot of the translations have, I am a, Jesus is able to guard what I have entrusted to Jesus. It goes the other way. Jesus. So it's either Jesus is entrusting something to Paul, or Paul is entrusting something to Jesus. Now, to show you that, here's some translations. Well, let's look at my translation that I'm using. Whoop, I don't have it down here. I don't know what translation I am using. So whatever it was, it had Paul as entrusting, entrusting something to Jesus to guard it until that. No, excuse me. My translation has Jesus has entrusted to Paul something that will be guarded until that day. 
He says, I'm convinced that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me. But if you read the King James, the King James says, I know I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. Not what Jesus has committed unto Paul, but which I, Paul, have committed unto him, Jesus. So it goes either way. The Greek is absolutely ambiguous. It's not clear which way the deposit goes, the, the gift, that which has been deposited, to which way it goes. I would submit to you it doesn't really make any difference. If that which has been deposited is Paul's life, well, he's given it to Jesus, and he's deposited it with Jesus, and Jesus will take care of his life until that day. What if that which is deposited is his converts? I leave my converts. I leave Timothy, for example, to you, Jesus. Trust him. Guard until that day. Or if it goes the other way, what has been entrusted to me from Jesus to Paul, that would be what? Eternal life? The gospel? Either way, it, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is Jesus is faithful all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Now, there's a question of what is it that's been entrusted? John Gill suggests it's Paul's converts. Paul's converts have been entrusted to him, or either Paul is entrusting his converts to Jesus, depending on which way you want to translate it. But it's Paul's converts. And that's interesting. I never had thought about that. He, Paul would be worried about that. He's leaving Timothy and all of his converts behind. You know, that's typically what you think about. Oh, my church, my church is what's going to happen to him. And he says, I'm not worried about that. I'm not going to be ashamed or afraid because God's going to take care of my converts. Most people take it, however, as referring to Paul's life. I've got my, here's my life, Jesus, take care of it. You protect me until the end. Now there's a question of what is the day. Whatever is deposited and entrusted either to Jesus or from Jesus to Paul, whatever it is, it's going to be protected and guarded until that day. Well, most people say that's the end of time. Let me give you a quote from Barnes. Quote, the day of judgment, call that day without anything further to designate it, because it is the great day, the day for which all other days were made. It seems to have been so much the object of thought and conversation among the early Christians that the apostles supposed that he would be understood by merely referring to it as that day. That is the day which they were always preaching about and talking about and thinking about. And that's reasonable, but I have a question. Is it the day of judgment after the final coming of Jesus that the early church talked about a lot? A lot of times you look at it and it's, wait a minute, how can it be judgment day? Paul is talking to people in the first century and telling them, about things that happen at the end of time. Well, maybe he's talking about the day, the judgment coming, which was predicted in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21, and which formed a prominent part of Jesus' teaching. Maybe that's what they had on their mind. And Paul is saying, I'm able to, Jesus is able to take care of me until Jesus comes back, wreaks vengeance on his enemies you know, during the days of vengeance, as in Luke 21, all of it discourse. And when that happens, these nasty persecuting Jews are going to be off my case, and I will have made it until then. I, you, Jesus will have guarded me until that day, that judgment day. So I'm not sure Barnes is right about this is the day, day at the end of the world. Now, if you do take it at the end of the world, the question arises, well, how is Jesus able to guard your life, guard Paul's life until the end of the world? Well, it might not be Paul's life. It might be It might not be his earthly life. It could be his spiritual life, including what happens after he dies. So uh, I'm not going to take a stand on a pillbox and defend either position on that. The point is is that whenever that day is, Jesus has got Paul's back. He's he's guarding him. Second Timothy one thirteen, Paul continues, Hold on to the pattern of healthy teachings that you have heard from me, along with the faith and love that are in the Messiah Jesus. 
The pattern of healthy teachings, the Greek word is hupotuposis, is used of an architect's design. It's a blueprint. And so, yes, there is a standard, a blueprint, a design of teachings. And these people were so doggone loosey-goosey. Oh, Jesus just loves me. We're not going to define what love is. We're just going to feel good. No, 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 no. There's a pattern of healthy teachings. Now, this has large implications because so many people don't follow Paul's teachings. They don't follow his pattern. For example, let's look at the pattern of churches in Paul's day. They had, and, and I asked, does your church or do most churches in the West, do they do this? Do they have a weekly Lord's Supper? Do they have the Lord's Supper as a full meal or do they just have a little sip and a little chip? Do they have special religious church buildings for meetings? Paul didn't. They met in homes. Do you have paid clergy? Do you pay your pastor's salary? They did in the New Testament. Do you have a monarchical pastor, a pastor pope running a one-man show? Some of you do. Some of you might not. But none of the early church had churches like that. Does your church have interactive meetings where everyone shares, as in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14? Probably not. You listen to a sermon. And you sit there like bumps on a log. Inert. Inactive. And probably trying hard as you can to stay awake. And the does your church carry out church discipline? It's rarely done in the modern world. It was done in Paul's time. So maybe we ought to start look at Paul's teaching on the church and start following his pattern. Not only his pattern of what he taught, but the pattern of what his churches looked like after he established them. After all, they were the apostles. They were the ones that were closer to Jesus in teaching, much more close than these church growth marketing experts that you see advertised everywhere in the Christian Christian press. Maybe we ought to go back and do it the way Paul did. Maybe we'll be a lot happier. Maybe we'll really enjoy church if we do that. We go now to verse 14, 2 Timothy 1. With the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, protect the good treasure that has been entrusted to you. Paul just finished talking about that which has been entrusted to him by Jesus or that which he has entrusted to Jesus. And now he's talking about the good treasure that has been entrusted to Timothy. That's, of course, the good treasure. is probably the gospel. Or maybe Paul's being more specific, as Gil says, and maybe he's talking about Paul's ministry work that Paul has entrusted to Timothy. Because, let's face it, you know, Timothy got a lot of ministry stuff from Paul. Maybe he's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, John Gill says. Whatever it is, the gospel, Paul's ministry, gospel in general, Paul's ministry work in particular, whatever. Protect it. Because, folks, if you don't take care to protect that which has been given to you, it will be taken away. Somebody gives you a house, you better take care of it because the wind and the rain will eat it up. And the termites and the bugs will eat it up. you got to take what and protect the good stuff that's been given to you. Somebody gives you money, you better figure out how not to spend it on something stupid or invest it in something stupid to protect it. How do we do that? With the help of the Holy Spirit. And where is the Holy Spirit? He lives in us. Because Christians are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are houses where the Holy Spirit lives. He dwells in us. Which is the same thing as saying Christ in us. The hope of glory. And whenever you see in, you can translate it as in union with. So with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in union with us. Second Timothy 1.15 you know that everyone in Asia has abandoned me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, Phygelus and Hermogenes are lost when nobody knows who they were, what happened to them, where they are when Paul was writing. Nobody knows anything about them. But now, Paul says everyone, not just Phygelus and Hermogenes, but everyone in Asia has abandoned him. Well, who could that be? Well, it could be all the people in Asia that had come to Rome on business or whatever and went by and stopped and got to know Paul or got to see Paul, and then they just left him there. 
that could be, or it could be workers in Asia who had followed Paul over to Rome and were helping him or seeing him or encouraging him, and then they just got tired of Paul being in jail and said, ah, heck with him, and they left him there. Or it could be people who've never been to Rome but who are in Asia. All the people in the churches in Asia have abandoned Paul. Now, if it's that, if all the churches in Asia have abandoned Paul, that's pretty serious. That's a lot of people because Paul had a big influence there. You know, he was in Ephesus for three years at the end of his third journey. Well, I don't think it's all the churches. I think it's probably a few church workers who used to work with Paul. He mentions two of them, Fidulus and Hermogenes. So I think he's talking about individuals who were ministering with him, and they just left him probably because he was in jail. What kind of a Christian is he? He doesn't have enough faith. If he'd have just prayed to God and quoted that verse about, I will not be afraid of the of the fire by day or the moon that comes by night. Of Psalm 91, I forgot how it goes exactly. If I'm not, a, he didn't quote that enough, and now he's in jail, and therefore he doesn't have enough faith. Now I'm going to sit down in my $23 million mansion and, and preach a sermon on faith. It's better than what the Apostle Paul did. Well, Paul might have been a little bit down here. Everyone has abandoned him because he's in jail by himself. That can get you. Now, he did, he in the book of Philippians, he wrote Philippians while he was in jail, too, in Romans, and he constantly talked. I think it was 16 times the word rejoice showed up in, the, in that short letter. 16 times. Fourth chapter, 16 times. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And I suspect he's talking about rejoicing because he has to convince himself of it. In other words, this, the, the, when something is, when you're weak in some area, that's where you tend to try to get spiritual strength in order to combat the weakness. Just like you've got a virus in your body, the antibodies go to where the virus is. And so I suspect that Paul was feeling abandoned and he was tempted to feel ashamed. And he's saying, no, don't be ashamed of me. Timothy, and thank you, Timothy, because you haven't abandoned me, I think is implicit here. We go to verses 16, 17, and 18. We'll finish up the chapter. Paul continues, May the Lord grant mercy to the family of Onesiphorus, or Onesiphorus, Onesiphorus, for the family of Onesiphorus. For he often took care of me and was not ashamed that I was a prisoner. Instead, when he arrived in Rome, he searched diligently for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he finds mercy on the day he comes again. You know very well how much he assisted me in Ephesus. Well, so this Onesiphorus, whoever he was, he worked with Paul in Ephesus, assisted Paul in Ephesus, and he also also went to Rome and took care of him in Rome. He often took care of Paul in Rome. Now, there's an interesting little theological controversy on this verse. May the Lord grant mercy to the family of Onesiphorus. Why did Paul not say grant mercy to Onesiphorus individually? Why did he mention his family? Well... Some commentators, including Roman Catholic commentators, they say that Onesiphorus is already dead, so Paul is asking for mercy from the Lord to grant mercy to the family because Onesiphorus himself is dead. And since Paul says in verse 18, may the Lord grant that Onesiphorus finds mercy and Onesiphorus is already dead, that means people were praying for a dead man. Well, you know, the Catholics love to do that, pray for dead people. And this is how they back it up. This is a verse. In my opinion, this is typical of Roman Catholic theology. It's a bunch of wishful thinking and special pleading. Well, for one reason, Paul could have said, Lord, grant mercy to the family of Onesiphorus, because Onesiphorus is not at his family's home right now. He's off on a trip somewhere. He's not dead. And so since he's gone, Paul just mentions the family. I would go even further than that and I'd say, well, so what? What if he was with the family? Why can't you say, I wish blessings on you and your family? And we do that in English all the time. How's your family doing? Good. We well, hope your wife and your family's doing all right. I mean, come on. 
we're going to prove praying to the dead from this because Paul just mentions mercy to the family of Anusophorus? I don't think so. Another problem with the Catholic view that Anusophorus was dead is how can a dead man come again? May the Lord grant that he finds mercy. He, Onesiphorus, finds mercy on the day he comes again. Well, the Catholics can say that coming again is referring to when Jesus comes again, not when Onesiphorus comes again back to Rome. All right, so we'll give them that one. Here's a quote from Barnes, arguing against the Catholic position. Paul would not offer prayer for him if he were if he were dead. If he was dead, the papists indeed argued from this in favor of praying for the dead. Assuming from 2 Timothy 4.19 that Onesiphorus was then dead, but there is no evidence of that. The passage in 2 Timothy 4.19 would prove only that he was then absent from his family. In 2 Timothy 4.19 says this, Salute Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. And again, just because Paul says salute the household, does that really mean that Onesiphorus is not in the household? Some people say it just means he's absent, and that's why Paul mentioned the household. The Protestants say he was absent, and therefore this gives no sanction for praying for the dead. I just think it just means he was mentioned the household of Onesiphorus. It doesn't mean that much. It just means, is it not Onesiphorus in the household of Onesiphorus? Isn't he himself there? He could be there. He doesn't have to be visiting anywhere. Well, even if the Catholics are right, and I certainly don't think they are, this is the only place in the Bible where there's prayer for dead if you take the Catholic interpretation. That's a pretty weak read for such an embedded practice, praying for the dead. Now, in verse 18, Paul says, May the Lord grant that he finds mercy, and that's a forest, finds mercy on the day he comes again. Now, who's the he that's coming again? Well, when I read it, I just took it as, May the Lord grant, and that's a forest, mercy on the day that the forest comes again to Rome. He's in Ephesus. He helped me in Rome. He's back in Ephesus, and when he comes again to Rome, I want him to help me. That's the simplest way. But some people say it's referring to, May Anesiphorus find mercy on the day that Jesus comes again. Ellison and Clark mentioned that option. I don't think so, but let's say it is. Let's say it's referring on the day that he comes again at the end of time. Well, if you say, May the Lord grant that Anesiphorus finds mercy on Judgment Day, that sounds like Anesiphorus is not even saved. Well, of course Onesiphorus is saved. Otherwise, why is he trying to help Paul out? Of course he's saved. So if he's saved, why would Paul be trying to ask Onesiphorus to find mercy on Judgment Day? He's already got mercy on Judgment Day. I think he's talking about when Onesiphorus comes again, in my humble opinion. How did Onesiphorus care for Paul in Rome in prison? Could be financially, could be emotionally, coming to pray for him, to help him, to visit him. Onesiphorus in verse 17 had to search for Paul. Instead, when he arrived in Rome, he searched diligently for me. Why did he have to search for him? Because Paul was a big, because Rome was a big, crowded city. Now, why was Onesiphorus in Rome looking for Paul? It could be he was just there on business and heard about Paul's trouble and wanted to go see him. Or it could have been he went from Ephesus to Rome for the express purpose of looking Paul up in jail. Paul is said to be a prisoner in Rome, as we have said many times. John Gill says that he was probably under house arrest, not in a dungeon, he was free to move about but had a chain attached to his arm and his guard's arm. And my question would be, how does Gill know that? I hear people speculating over this house arrest versus prison. Imprisonment, and I really don't know which way it goes half the time. I'm assuming he's in prison getting ready to die. Somebody that's getting ready to be executed, I don't think, would be under house arrest. I don't think Gill's right about that. At any rate, ladies and gentlemen, we have finished Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. In our next audio, we'll take up 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and we'll see how Paul exhorts Timothy to be a good soldier for Christ. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 